Hey, I want to let you know that uh, for those of you who are, are or are not in a life group, which is our weekly uh, in-home midweek gatherings for adults, uh, life groups are going to be kicking off next week. And next Sunday, we're going to have an on-ramp. We're going to have a life groups fair. If you're not in a life group yet, uh, that'll be your opportunity. And, and uh, please know that you are invited to be a part of one of our life groups. And if God has been tapping you on the shoulder this year about leading a group, we're, I'm looking for leaders because we have folks that want to be in groups and not enough, not enough groups. So um, would love to be able to chat with you about that. Well, last week we, uh, we started uh, this new series, Joy in the City, and, and it's, uh, we're already in the middle of it because it's just a three-week a three series, just a brief series. Um, but we started with a quote that I came across about 10 years ago when we were in the process of launching a new thing that would be called LifePoint Church. And I wanted to share it again this week because it bears repeating, and I'll probably share it again next week so you can memorize it. But uh, here's a, a guy named Steve Shogren. Uh, said this, don't, he said this to church planters, don't go to start a church, go to serve a city. Serve them with love. Small things done with great love will change the world. And, and God used that along with some other things that I was reading at the time to just really shape my thinking and then our thinking as, as the, the team that started LifePoint um, it really shaped our philosophy of ministry because it said we're here in this community to be servants of this community. And, and so we, we started looking from the very beginning for ways that we could serve. And, and we, when we, we started LifePoint, we were over at what is now Aspire Middle School. And then they kicked us out to remodel the building. And we ended up here at Timberline kicking and screaming. And the first Sunday we went, oh, this is kind of nice. Uh, but it wasn't long before I was sitting down with Dave Lennis, who was the principal at the time, and just saying, how, how can we serve this school? What can we do? Can we paint bleachers? Can we you know, scrape gum off the sidewalk? Can you know, we get graffiti to clean up? How can we serve? And uh, eventually that led us to our in involvement with the backpacks program here, which has been a great investment. But we also began last Sunday to see that a concern for the cities in which we live is a biblical concern. Um, as, as you read through the Old Testament and then the New Testament, you, you, you realize that cities figure prominently in the unfolding story of God's redemptive activity in history. And the cities matter to God, I suppose, because they're populated with people who matter to God. I mean, the city itself without the people would be an empty place, but it's the people that matter to God. And, and at LifePoint, we've chosen to make the city in which God has planted us a point of concern and compassion because we affirm that the people who live here do matter to God. So our uh, list of core values as a church includes this, that as a church, we seek to be a source of joy to our neighbors and to our community and civic leaders. We seek to contribute to the well-being of the cities in which we live. We invest time energy and resources to practically meet the needs of the last and the least among us. You know, we wrote that in such a way that it was, you know, it's a, it's a present kind of statement. We, we do these things so that as, as time went by, if we read them, they weren't just ideals. They would, it would convict us about what we weren't doing, perhaps. But, but we've tried to do that. We want to just get better and better and better at serving 
our community. So my hope is that this brief series of messages uh, will help us better understand uh, the heart and mind of God, first of all, for healthy cities, and then the particular needs and dreams of the cities in which we live, particularly Lacey, and our calling and our capacities as a church to make a difference uh, in this place. And over these weeks, we have the opportunity to meet several civic leaders and hopefully gain a better understanding of our city really through their eyes to allow them to inform us through what they see and what they experience. And so this morning, it's our privilege to welcome uh, Deborah Clemens, who is the superintendent of the North Thurston Public Schools, and uh, Paul Dean, who is the principal of Timberline High School. Will you welcome them with me? Good morning. I'm uh, I said this in the first service, but I want to say it again. I'm, I'm really grateful that you took time out of your weekend to be with us because I know that you're... Paul, this is like the place you don't want to be on the weekend, right? I mean, <laughs> you're here every day of your life plus. But I'm so grateful that, that you chose to be with us. Will you share with us a little bit about who you are and your families and your professional role and what that involves? Good morning, and thank you for the invitation to be here this morning. Um, my name is Deb Clemens, and I am currently the superintendent of North Thurston Public Schools. I'm originally from Wisconsin, and I have been in education for almost 30 years, and I started as a high school business teacher. I didn't plan to be a teacher. Um, when I left for college, I was planning to be a business major, and I was... Um, uh, involved with the youth group and providing um, support to teenagers and thought that is way more fun. <laughs> and so um, I changed my major and I became a high school business teacher and uh, have served in a lot of different roles um, over the last 30 years. Uh, was a high school principal for a period of time and uh, worked in central office for a number of years. And um, prior to North Thurston, I absolutely love our school district and our community, um, I was a superintendent in Cheney Public Schools. So that's where Eastern Washington University is located, if any of you are familiar with that part of Washington. I'm Paul Dean. I'm the principal here at Timberline. And... Um, I grew up in Centralia, just down the road, and my, my dad was a teacher, and of course that meant that I needed to go do something different, I thought, and I uh, got a business degree uh, out, of, uh, out of college and um, went to work for an airline and worked a little bit in New York and a little bit in Los Angeles, and um, although there were things about my job that I enjoyed. Um, my mind kept going back to uh, probably the people that were most influential in my life were all educators. And um, so I decided that that's what I wanted to do. I went back to, to school a little bit longer and got my teaching credential and I taught business classes, first at Aberdeen for a couple years and then uh, at North Thurston High School for one year before coming to Timberline in 1999 and I've been here ever since as a teacher and a um, uh, assistant principal and now the principal. My wife uh, is also a teacher. She teaches at North Thurston High School and um, my son is a senior 
here at Timberline, and my daughter is a freshman at North Thurston. So we're sort of a house divided between green and purple, but um, that's, that's where we're at. That's amazing. That's great. Thank you. Uh, we're, we're thinking together as a church about how we can contribute to the health and the, the welfare of our city. What is a, what is a healthy school community look like to you and then uh, what are you seeing from your vantage point in the public schools uh, as to some of the more prominent needs of students and their families in this community? Well I feel like a, a healthy a healthy school um, you know first and foremost one of our jobs is to make sure that our students graduate and uh, have a plan ahead of them and um, we're fortunate that we have a very very high graduation rate at Timberline and 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 throughout our district, and so um, you know that's that's the first thing. And I think the only way that that happens is that we have a partnership with the community and a partnership with parents and uh, families. Um, there's just no no way that that we can be successful as a school without that partnership. And so um, we really work very hard to try to main, make sure that that partnership is there. Um, as far as challenges go, um, uh, we know that we have uh, a large amount of students that um, are in difficult situations financially. Um, that prohibits them in some ways from uh, just basic needs. Um, so I think that's a major, major challenge for us. And we have also seen that um, uh, mental health struggles and mental health issues for our young people is a major um, uh, component of, of making life difficult for, for students and setting them up for success in the future. We're fortunate in that our district um, has done some really nice things in terms of providing some uh, supports within the schools and uh, I'm grateful for that, but it's a challenge that's out in front of us for sure. Um, well, first I want to say thank you for um, what you do to give back to Timberline and our school community. Um, things like collecting food is a, a wonderful way to give back and provide support. Um, I wanted to share that uh, two years ago, we engaged in a strategic planning process and I wanted to share one of the core beliefs that um, you have identified as a church community is as um, connected to one of our core beliefs that's in our strategic plan and this is available on our, on our district's website and it is family and community partnerships are essential to meet the needs of our students. And um, I've been in education for a while and I think as, a school, as schools, there were a number of years where we just tried to do it all ourselves. And, and we weren't as connected to our community. And I've seen that change over my career. I think um, uh, we're more aware of what the needs are of our students, um, looking way beyond uh, the basic academic needs. I think most people, when they think about schools, they think our primary purpose is the academic achievement of our students. And one of the things that we know is that for students to be successful academically, their social-emotional needs have to be met, and those go hand-in-hand. Hand. Um, our district-wide theme this year is Everyone Belongs, 
And um, we've implemented some programs here at Timberline. We uh, did breaking down the walls. I think we had the assembly on Friday or to start Monday um, at each of our high schools where we're really um, trying to help every student feel like that they do belong. And um, I think building that sense of community and working with community partners so that when we know that a child has a need or a teenager has a need, that we can then provide the support structures to meet that need. Um, Paul mentioned that um, we are becoming more aware of some of the mental health needs and the social emotional needs of our students. And, and we provide some of that support in terms of staff for our, our direct services to our students, but we also connect with our community to meet those needs. Great. So um, what are some things that you need to accomplish, hope to accomplish, in your professional leadership, whether it's at the district level or here in the high school, uh, that range from extremely difficult to nearly impossible? So one of the things that I shared during the first service is on the screen behind me, and that is, so our district-wide theme is Everyone Belongs, and one of our core beliefs as a school district is compassionate attitudes and actions create a culture of service. And as a school district, we really believe that it's important for our students to have their needs met and for them to learn how to give back to their community, to develop a sense of purpose. We have partnered with the City of Lacey and the Lacey South Sound Chamber, which is the business um, chamber for, for the community, to document 100,000 acts of compassion within our community. And we invite you to join us in achieving that goal. On the screen behind me, you'll see that there's a heart with a compassion symbol um, in the middle of it. And there are 500 little squares. And within each of our schools, we're identifying how to document acts of compassion. So it could be a group of fifth graders that do a sock drive um, within, their, within their classroom. And let's say they, they you know, bring in 30 socks and then they mark down that they have 30 acts of compassion. So everyone can contribute in their own way. There are many, many needs in our school district. We have a volunteer coordinator that works at the district office, and we have a website where you can go and sign up to volunteer within our schools. And um, really, I think we have every opportunity for you. If you have a lot of time, um, we can set you up as a mentor, as a reading buddy. If you only have a little time, we can provide you an opportunity to help out at a track meet or to um, chaperone a dance. We had a dance here last night, right? Um, so there are, there are lots of ways that you can give back to the community. And whatever um, time and talent that you have, we can find the right fit for you. I think in, in uh, thinking about things that are very, very difficult, um, as the principal of the school, we have 1,450-some students here at Timberline, and um, we feel like it's our uh, responsibility to um, make sure that we're uh, connecting to each and every kid as an individual, and in a way, giving them uh, the opportunity to achieve what they want to what they want to achieve, and that's uh, that's a difficult task. Um, I think that one of the ways that that uh, 
that we do that or that we try to do that is making sure that each and every one of our students is connected in some way uh, to the school, connected in some way to an adult. Um, we have so many kids, um, the, the variety of what they're trying to accomplish is uh, across the whole spectrum, you know, from students that are um, very, very uh, successful academically and, and, and uh, have very high hopes for um, going to particular colleges. Um, and then, there, then we have students that they really just need uh, individual supports just to um, kind of get their basic needs met. And that's a, that's a huge challenge um, for us as a school system and as a school to try to make sure we do that. Um, and really it's, it's about, I think, focusing on uh, what our students are capable of instead of where their deficits are. And um, I'm really just trying to provide uh, hope for our students. And, um, you know, I think that that would be something that if I knew that every one of our kids felt hope for their future and, and for what they can accomplish and how they can impact uh, our community, then I'd feel pretty good about things. That's great. Well said. Thank you. So um, as I shared with you, our, our goal for having you here is really to help us think more practically, more specifically about how a faith community like ours can support you, encourage you, help you be successful in your goals. So what are some, you started into it in just a, a, a moment ago, but what are some specific ideas that you have uh, for how we as a church might come alongside you? Well, one thing that I didn't share during the first service that occurred to me as I was sitting here is that um, I think throughout our district we have a lot of unsung heroes. We have bus drivers who greet kids every day, and we have custodians that keep our school communities clean and um, nutrition services staff that greet kids as they are coming through the lunch line. And oftentimes our community recognizes our teachers, which is great, but we have a lot of people in our school district who don't get recognized. And um, I think if you think about service, not just directly to students, but to the staff who care for students, um, showing up at the bus garage um, with donuts on a morning would be really awesome. What a great idea. I mean, just any, you know, small um, uh, token of appreciation for staff who um, don't get a lot of kudos, I think would go a long way. Um, I also um, think that there are some very visible and tangible things that we do, such as food drives. I think some of our students, what they really need is the less visible. It's um, spending time with them and just listening to them. And so um, I think, you know, showing up and um, being a part of the school community in some way, you know, based on, like I said, the amount of time that you have um, can make a really big difference in a child's life. And I'll, I'll say, as the principal here, thank you so much for, uh, as a congregation, for what you do every year to, to raise um, 
to, to get food for our, our kids. It, it does make a huge difference. And, you know, obviously that's, that's one very special way um, to contribute. Um, you know, in the, in the first service, we um, talked about the possibility of looking at uh, ways to connect individuals from the community with with students and in some sort of a mentorship fashion um, either academically or just just socially and I think that Dr. Clemens brings up a good point and that is um, not just for the for the staff but you know um, it's really easy to uh, you know read the newspaper watch the news and and kind of think that uh, young people today are are um, you know maybe not as good as they were in the good old days, <laughs> and I'm here to tell you that every single day uh, I see something that really uh, warms my heart. Our students are kind, caring. Um, they do so many great things for each other, and I think that one way one way that our community can continue to help our students is to um, believe that and recognize that, that there's a lot of great young win- men and women out there that um, have so much uh, hope and promise. And um, I think if we can make sure that we keep that out, out in front of uh, our, our community as a whole, I just think that has a great effect on the success of our kids. That's awesome. That's a great note to end on. Let, can, let me pray for you before you go and be seated. Lord, thank you for these two people. And uh, Lord, for, the, for those that they represent who are serving in, uh, as teachers, administrators, uh, support personnel, transportation, nutrition, custodial. I'm sure I'm missing a lot of other areas across our district. People that are serving faithfully. And thank you for the reminder of, uh, of the fact that we have a great community of young people that are coming up. And uh, Lord, help us to be found faithful uh, in, in supporting them and encouraging them and providing every resource they need to be successful in their lives, to find the, the purpose for which you created them and, uh, and to flourish in that. And so we thank you for these two and for their willingness to be here this morning uh, in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you welcome or just thank them with me? Thanks, bud. So in the time I have left, I just want to um, turn your attention to God's word for a few minutes. Um, And thank you. That was great. Appreciate that so much. You know, when you read through the Bible, uh, you might begin to notice that the biblical writers employed a variety of words and phrases that were descriptive of the people of God, Uh, whether it was Israel in the Old Testament, the church in the New Testament, among them are words like foreigners, uh, strangers, aliens, and exiles. Abraham was called by God to leave his home in a major city called uh, Ur of the Chaldees, probably the largest city uh, in the known world in ancient times, and, and to go to a land that God would show him, which was, of course, the land of Canaan, which we now know as the land of Israel. And he went, 
He made his home in that land. He, he lived not in a house, but in a tent, not as a settler, uh, but as a nomad. Uh, in his own words, he lived as a stranger in a foreign country. Hebrews 11.10 says of Abraham that he was looking forward to the city with foundations, uh, whose architect and builder is God. Reading on in Hebrews 11, we hear the, the writer saying of the Old Testament people of faith that they were foreigners and strangers on earth, looking for a country of their own, longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. The New Testament writers applied similar language to followers of Jesus, and uh, it can be especially seen in the letters written by Peter, who began his first letter in this way. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So it was a circular letter that he wrote. Later in that first chapter, he said to them, you must honor God while you live as strangers here on earth. Well, a lot of that language came out of an experience that Israel had in the 7th century BC when God acted to judge the nation of Israel for her pervasive idolatry, immorality, unfaithfulness. And he raised up uh, a powerful king named Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, think Iraq, as his instrument of judgment. And Nebuchadnezzar and his army attacked Israel, uh, brutally conquered Israel, deported many of them, including many of the rulers, most of the rulers, noblemen, uh, young leaders, uh, to Babylon. And that period of exile spanned 70 years. Well, Psalm 137 expresses the despair and the disruption and the disassociation that, that was experienced by those who were deported. Beginning at verse 1, it says, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion, when we remembered our home. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. And the rhetorical question that's asked in verse 4, I think, is powerful. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? It's a poignant question. How, how can we sing the songs of the Lord in a foreign land? How can we make our mouths form words of praise and thanksgiving when things are really bad? And they said, we can't. They were prisoners. They were strangers in a strange land. They had survived the siege, the ensuing battles. Many of them had seen their friends, their neighbors, even their family members brutally killed. Some raped, tortured. And, and then they themselves had been subjected to a forced march of, of a, an estimated 900 miles from Jerusalem to Babylon. They had been uprooted from all that was familiar to them, all that was comforting to them. And they're now in a place uh, where they understood neither the language nor the culture, uh, where they were humiliated, where they were enslaved with little hope of ever seeing home again. And now their captors were in mocking tones asking them to sing for their entertainment. How can we sing the Lord's song under these conditions, they asked. 
So they took their musical instruments, they abandoned them among the branches of the trees, and they sat down and they just wept. You know, as we look around us today, we, we find ourselves in a post-Christian culture that has changed dramatically in a surprisingly short period of time. The culture in which we live is increasingly violent, it's increasingly cynical, it's increasingly idolatrous and immoral, it's increasingly relativistic, hostile to biblical Christian faith, and at times it may feel to us like we are living in a foreign land. We, we may be prone to asking similar questions. How, how can we sing the Lord's song in a dramatically changed cultural setting? How can we remain hopeful and even joyful in a time and place when our deeply held values are increasingly opposed and frequently under assault? What, what does it mean to live faithfully and productively as citizens of the kingdom of God in a time such as this? Well, it was during the time leading up to and, and into the Babylonian exile that Jeremiah the prophet lived and, and prophesied in the kingdom of Judah. And he, he wrote a letter to his exiled countrymen in Babylon that gave them hope, that gave them perspective, that instructed them in how God intended them to live in their new home. And will you follow along as I read? This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Let me just pause right there. Notice it says Nebuchadnezzar carried them into exile. Now look at verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. See, God had a purpose. He had a plan even in the midst of catastrophe. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens, eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So notice with me that first of all, God says to, to Israel in exile, Israel who's finding it difficult to sing the Lord's song in a strange land, make yourselves at home in the city. Make yourselves at home in the city. They were in exile, but even as captives, they apparently had a high degree of freedom, and God tells them to really settle down and to use that freedom to their advantage over the coming 70 years of exile. I mean, really, really, really settling down meant they were, that they were to build houses, that they were to plant gardens, that they were to grow their families, multiply numerically. And secondly, God says, seek the peace and prosperity of the city. And you can almost feel the incredulity of, that was rising in the hearts and minds of the exiles as they read this second half of the instruction, can't you? I mean, they had against their will been forcibly thrown into a pagan, hostile environment. They'd been dragged out of everything they had known. Could God possibly expect them now to pursue blessing? 
for their captors. Well, they could understand and accept the first part. They, they enjoyed relative freedom in Babylon. They could live peaceful lives. They could keep to themselves. They maybe establish a Jewish ghetto in some sector of the particular city where they were living, remain separate from the larger society in as many ways as possible. But to seek the prosperity, the peace and the prosperity of the entire city, in effect to bless their their unbelieving pagan neighbors, the concept was absolutely revolutionary. It required Israel to understand their God-given mission in a way that was incredibly hard to accept. And nevertheless, there it was. This is what the Lord says. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city, even when that city is in Babylon. See, we need, to, we need to understand this phrase, peace and prosperity. In Hebrew, it's not three words, it's one word. It's the word shalom. Shalom. And the, the root meaning of shalom is to be whole, to be sound, to be secure, to be healthy. And, and the fundamental idea is, is its totality, its comprehensiveness. It, it involves the whole, the fullness of life. Shalom, then, is, is holistic well-being. Or as one person put it, comprehensive flourishing. I like that. They were to do two things with regard to the shalom, the comprehensive flourishing of the city. First of all, they were to seek it. They were to seek the shalom of the city. And to seek the shalom of the city implies, at least to me, active investment and involvement. Uh, it required them to engage intellectually, to apply their minds to 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 asking the right questions about what makes for the shalom, the peace, the prosperity, the health and welfare of the whole city, and then to engage practically in pursuit of the, the very best answers to those questions. And because shalom implies this comprehensiveness, seeking the shalom of the city would require them, would require them to form associations and enter into partnerships with their Babylonian neighbors in the process. They had to be all in, in the pursuit of the welfare of the city, even if it meant locking arms with people who didn't think like they thought, didn't believe like they believed. And secondly, they were to pray for the shalom of the city. They were to pray for it. Again, a radical request. Ask God to bless the cities of our enemies. And what that would require was, would be a radical change of heart which is exactly what happens when we begin to pray for those for whom we would rather not pray, for those we'd rather curse, for those we would rather uh, marginalize. Later on, Jesus himself would reintroduce that same radical ethic when he said, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain, which is a blessing in Israel, not a curse, on the righteous and the unrighteous. So finally, don't miss this promise that's attached to pursuing and praying for the peace and prosperity of the city. It says, because if it prospers, you too 
will prosper. Your, your prosperity, your well-being, your shalom is directly and inextricably linked with the shalom of the city. And again, interestingly enough, these words prospers and where it says because if it prospers, you too will prosper. The word prosper there is shalom. If the city experiences shalom, you will experience comprehensive flourishing. You, you will thrive. What God was saying was that their peace, their security, their blessing, their health and welfare was inextricably tied to that of the whole city. And because that was true for their own good, they could no longer relate to the Babylonians as enemies, but also as neighbors and even as friends. See, what happens when we begin to pray for somebody we'd rather not pray for is, is that that heart change takes place. It's impossible to, to, to sincerely, meaningfully, purposefully, intentionally, deliberately pray for someone without your heart changing towards them. And I know because I'm probably one of them. As I, as I look around the world today, there are a lot of things that, that, that really frustrate me, that really make me angry. But what if we... What if we turned that energy that we expend being angry into praying? What if we took that same energy and turned it into pursuing the peace and the prosperity of our communities? Well, it's time to close. Here's the takeaway for today. Four brief bulleted points. Number one, the community of God's people in the city are called to be ministers, called to be agents of, of God's shalom within the city. Secondly, ministers of God's shalom will cultivate trust and confidence and mutual concern among their neighbors. I gotta tell you, I'm, I'm serving on a, a steering committee right now. It's a great privilege. I was invited by uh, the mayor and the city manager to be a part of a, a faith leaders a steering committee on homelessness. And um, Brenda McCafferty is part of that, the homeless liaison. And um, the guy that I'm, I'm just finding great affinity for and appreciation for is a Mormon and and you know we believe very very differently and yet we're locking arms on this thing uh, and and cultivating trust and cultivating con confidence cultivating mutual concern you know ne nearly every place in the Old Testament where that word shalom appears or the concept is introduced the emphasis falls on on the interpersonal nature of human life it falls on relationships Shalom is loving your neighbor as yourself. Shalom is loving your enemies and blessing those who persecute you. At the heart of our faith is a man giving himself fully and sacrificially in love for others. A man not protesting against his enemies, but dying for them. Finally, ministers of, of, or third rather, ministers of God's shalom in the city are concerned about the spiritual well-being of their neighbors, yes. But they're equally concerned for their material and physical well-being. Good news and good deeds cannot and must not be separated. Finally, ministers of shalom know that above all else, shalom means peace with God. It means reconciliation with our creator. Without that, there is no peace. Shalom is the essence of the gospel. The apostle Paul wrote in Colossians 1, 19 to 20, for God was pleased 
to have all his fullness dwell in him that is in Jesus Christ and through Jesus to reconcile to himself, to reconcile to himself, to reconcile to himself all things. Whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. We are never more like Jesus than we are when we are sacrificially giving ourselves for the sake of others. Let's pray. Father, may that be true of us. May we be found to be. May we be ministers of shalom. May we reflect the sacrificial love of Christ as we serve our communities well. And Lord, thank you again for Paul and Deborah. And we do ask your blessing on them. We thank you for the privilege that is ours to meet here in this school, for the, the great relationship that we have with the school and with uh, Principal Dean. We, we appreciate him. We ask, Lord, that you would bless his work here. And uh, Lord, we, as we think about uh, the goals, even the ones that they shared today, uh, very briefly, the enormity of what they are called to be and to do uh, is apparent. And so, Lord, let us not fail in encouraging them and supporting them and engaging with them to make a difference and to bring shalom to our communities. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.